0: Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal, and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarisation of our communities, and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? I think of my guest today as a kind of acrobatic superhero He flies on top of sway poles, including 25 metres across London's Olympic Stadium. He's trekked 228 miles across Nicaragua, filmed by the BBC, and requiring armed soldiers due to the dangers of bandits and kidnappers. He's a trapeze artist who could probably hang upside down longer than Batman, and he's a creator of joyful and highly imaginative inclusive theatre. Daryl Beaton creates accessible theatre for everyone. He's a performer with a disability, and he shares the joy of creating alternative and imaginative ways of performing. If you want to see how many ways a wheelchair can spin, striking acrobatic shapes and unexpected choreographies, he's your man. Daryl, hello and welcome.
1: Hello. Thank you for that intro.
0: I hope you enjoyed it. I was so excited (laughs) doing my research. (laughs) I'm convinced you're a superhero. (laughs) Daryl, you've described creating accessible theatre through co-creation, mischief and merriment, which are great ingredients. And I wondered, have you always been mischievous?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, I suppose I have in a way. I mean... I um, I was brought up in a very um, working class, traditional, mainstream, non-disabled family slash world, and uh, realised at sort of quite a young age that the 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 usual rules didn't apply to me because of my being disabled and in and out of hospital and people's perceptions. So, um, yeah, I think quite young, I realised, well, I might as well play with that and have fun with it and just um, see how much I can get away with.
0: (laughs) You've talked about having a lot of fun with challenging perceptions, Um, and I'll quote you. I tease the audience, I pose the idea of the weak disabled person who can't do anything, lull them into a full sense of security, then boom, it all goes manic. And I really enjoyed that, and how how you work with fun in order to break down negative stereotypes. Is it fun that breaks down the barriers?
1: Well, I think there's many different approaches to breaking down barriers, and I think it comes from a um, uh, sort of a, a, a sort of multiple 360 approach. So for me, I use the tool of fun, surprise, playfulness as a way to um, uh, break down, to bring the guard down of people. So then we can then sort of have a bit more of a sort of deeper sort of conversation, whether that's a physical conversation or through a conversation through art. Um, And uh, so, yeah, some, and I always uh, think that, you know, in order to get, for me, in order to get to the politics of it, the door for me to open that for other people is through um, fun. And playfulness and so that's that's yeah that's always been my approach when making work or having conversations actually.
0: And it strikes me that um, fun is a, a form of openness and 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 that's how I relate it to healthy curiosity you know the, the openness of exploring and playing imaginative play. Um, I wondered if in your experience you find that whether it's working with disabled or non-disabled people, it's having that curiosity that enables people to work together in a way that's much more transformative or, or original.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, to, to start off with, we have a uh, we have a saying that we we take fun seriously. So we don't see it as something frivolous or something throwaway. In fact, it's uh, in order to get to the seriousness, we use fun as a tool. And um, as well as that is um, everything that I do is really around collaboration and conversation. And, uh, and through that, it really does um, enable us to to ask some tricky questions and to sort of try and understand that everybody in the space, whether whatever that be physical or not, um, is coming from a different life experience. And that actually by allowing that way, by allowing fun and taking fun seriously to open up those conversations, we can then start to understand each other in a, in a richer and more dynamic way that helps feed ourselves and other people.
0: I wondered. I, I was curious, in fact, where your your own sense of fun came from as a child, because um, I read um, that you'd described yourself as being isolated in mainstream education. You know, lack of role models. So I'm curious where your own sense of fun and inspiration has come from.
1: It's, it's gosh, that's a really interesting question. I, when I was younger, I was in uh, mainstream education mainstream school and then um against the sort of will of my uh, parents I was taken out of mainstream and put into a specialist school and I was in that specialist school for about ooh, a couple of years before the specialist school threw me out because they said I wasn't disabled enough and so I lived in this bit of a limbo for a little while um, but the thing that I find really interesting is that in this in the specialist school they weren't constrained By And this was back in the sort of, you know, early 80s. They weren't constrained by the sort of the way that mainstream school teaches young people. So the approach to teaching was much more creative. We were it was much more tactile. It was much more multisensory. It was much more. Well, it actually just used the arts as a tool for education. And so even though um, even though that sort of period of my life was a was an, an isolating one because, all of the kids on my council estate went to the same school and I had to get on a bus and go 45 minutes out of the city to the specialist school. So I was always sort of isolated. But I do think that actually brought, has been the root of me sort of being, making theatre and working in the arts today. And it's something that they probably didn't expect when they put me in that um, specialist school when I was like six. But that sort of approach to sort of learning and education using creative arts as a tool, I think has really influenced me and my work ever since.
0: It sounds like it was a gift on one hand, as you described, um, but also very disruptive, you know, to suddenly be told you're not disabled enough, which is interesting in itself. Um, But to then go to mainstream education, where the arts is actually deprived, how, how did you manage such a harsh transition?
1: To be fair, I don't really remember that much of it, but I do remember when I uh, got into mainstream school, as an example, in in junior school, um, they used to go swimming every Friday or something. I can't remember the day of the week. Um, But you had to walk to the swimming bath, which was about a 20-minute walk away. So I I never went swimming with the rest of my class. And um, what that meant was while everyone was swimming, they would sort of, you know, make me do some art or you know (laughs) or do some something that was like what they considered a soft subject um and so I think that was always my hook and then and then um when I got into secondary school uh you know it's I ended up sort of discovering the drama department and then that sort of became my um uh became my tribe in a way and so even though I was doing all of the same subjects as my um, peers, I was always drawn to the sort of the more creative arts sections of it because that's where I, yeah, because that's where I sort of thrived. And I think one of the the, the difficulties was actually being in specialist school for a couple of years meant that sort of, you know, uh, my English and uh, my maths and things like that um, uh, weren't, up to the same level as my peers in mainstream school. So I was always put in what was then called in those days the remedial classes um, for for catch-up and things like that. So I had a very sort of um, interesting and sort of love-hate with school because I loved it, but at the same time I didn't. But I only loved it because I just had – I was very lucky. I had really good sort of drama and art teachers that just just saw beyond – me being a disabled child in a fully mainstream school and just sort of, um, yeah, looked at what was the things that was preventing me from taking part and then just removed them.
0: It's interesting what you're describing because there's such heavy labelling going on. I remember that in my own experience, you know, the the below average six-year-old because she was too busy imagining um, you know, lived in her head, kind of thing, and school reports that would literally say, um, "Don't expect Paula to come to much." And I was six, <laughs> and you're just, dis- <laughs> and you, you're describing those heavy labels, which of course risks what we know as self fulfilling prophecy. You know, where people can literally fulfil a negative label, and your description of how the arts we use there's a real prejudice in it in terms of the arts will do it's not as serious as maths but the arts will do we'll just give we'll just give Daryl some colouring in it becomes quite prejudiced even though we know what a gift and how highly skilled it is and it's interesting that you mention the drama department at your school because I read that by the age of 14, you were already in small television roles.
1: I was indeed. So I grew up in Nottingham and uh, there used to be uh, a thing there called um, Central TV Drama Workshop. And it was basically a, a drama workshop that was ran by the local TV company as a way to generate ideas for their TV shows. And it had been going many years before I joined. And actually, the guy who used to run it, Ian, um, came and saw me in a school play and then approached me and said, oh, you should audition to be part of our group. And um, what that became was, as well as generating ideas for TV shows, it became a sort of, um, yeah, a professional training ground for young performers, young actors. And then it also became a bit of a casting pool. So, yeah, when I was like... 14 I had small parts in kids TV shows and things like that but interestingly I did a short film uh, when I was about 15 um, and uh, afterwards when it was made and put out there I didn't realise but other people sort of said to me afterwards have you noticed what they've done and I was like no what because I, um, I use a wheelchair but I can walk a small amount Um, And uh, what they'd done is that they'd edited it. So every time I got up to stand up and walk, that bit was cut out and then it would come back to me when I was sat down or just a headshot. So actually, if you didn't know me, the way that they'd edited the film, you wouldn't realize that I was a disabled person. And and when I was 15, I wasn't even aware of this. You know, I say that I didn't come out as disabled until I was like 21, um, because I had no real understanding of what it meant to be disabled, and also all of the language and all of the terminology was so negative that I didn't feel comfortable with it. Um, So, yeah, so even without being aware, that part of my identity had been
0: edited out of this short film. That's so shocking. So despite shocking treatment of your performances at at that young age, I was interested in whether it changed any of your relationships maybe with your peers or other school kids. You know, when you've been in quite an isolated position, but then you're suddenly perceived as the interesting kid who's on who's on the telly. I wondered if that had any impact.
1: Well, I suppose um, by that point, so by the time I was sort of like 15, 16, I'd sort of, um, as I say, I'd found my own tribe. And, and yeah, so, you know, not massively, because I'd sort of um, realised by that point that um who were the people that yeah i suppose who were the people that that i wanted to spend my time with and 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 who got me and i got them and you know the very sort of stereotypical sort of you know um we you know i we were a small group of sort of you know misfits or outsiders or those that were considered others or considered other i should say so um they were the people that I sort of spent my time with and and made, and made our own shows with and, and things like that. So um, in a way, we'd sort of, because we were all isolated in some shape or form, we'd created our own bubble and didn't really sort of notice the outside world ourselves.
0: It's really interesting. Other comes up far too often when you talk to artists in terms of... Um being made an outsider in in many ways because of the artistic life that you're choosing to lead. But what you were just saying reminded me of the work you did with an artist called Tim Mars in Reframing the Myth. Uh, It was at the Guardian's exhibition space. And I'll quote him first. Um, This is what drew my eye, and and it relates to the idea of being othered. And he said, I was impressed by Daryl's circus and performance work showing his agility, elegance and strength. The sway pole as he flew through the air gave him immense power. I based the work on the circus of old, the American carny and freak show posters. I wanted to turn this message on its head, making it a more positive 21st century message. Daryl creates a beauty in what he does. And in the image, he states, live your life with joy and wonder. And I wondered, Daryl, if perhaps for the listeners, you might want to reflect and describe what that what that image was and, and your own response to that interpretation.
1: Yeah, sure. So that came through, um, so uh, Grey Eye Theatre Company, and um, I, I know it's CIA, but I can't, send, I forget what it stands for now, Illustration Agency, I can't remember what the C stands for, um, so they did a collaboration and uh, put um, artists, visual artists, graphic artists with um, disabled performers and or disabled artists. And so that process was an interesting one. So me and Tim just, um, we never physically met, but we spoke a lot on the phone and we had many conversations. Um, and it was really um, around sort of, well, first of all, just addressing the lack of, uh disabled imagery within sort of visual arts and graphic arts and stuff like that and um yeah so we had we had several conversations and and it was interesting because i didn't know what he was going to take away from those conversations and incorporate and i would just send him loads of images and stuff like that and so he yeah he really took that sort of idea of um again it really ties into this idea of sort of play and turning things on its head and um, you know i always say as a disabled person walking on stage i'm always going to challenge somebody's perception before i do anything so it was really just sort of playing with that and um yeah so he put uh gosh i've got to try and remember what the image is now although i do have the poster out in my hallway i've still got it on my, on my wall um and uh yeah really played with this idea of of um of uh juxtapositioning that old sort of circus freak show with a sort of modern twist and um and it was really interesting that quote um uh that you just read out was that is actually a lyric from an rem song because he asked me what my favorite song was and that was one of them so he took it from that and um uh, yeah, so it's just sort of a collage of of of, of different images of of, of uh, myself that he'd he'd worked through uh, to sort of show this flow and physicality to who I am. Which, um, if you just saw me in the street, you wouldn't assume that I would have that sort of flow. And it's just on that note, sorry, it's a bit random. I it's interesting. I um, as I say, I use a wheelchair but previous and I also use crutches to get around and it's interesting I think as a society we've got used to seeing the wheelchair user so I don't get stared at that much when I'm in my chair but when I'm on my crutches because my physicality is so different I get A lot more stairs because people are really like interested in in the way that sort of my body physically moves through a space which is so different but when I'm in my chair no one bats an eyelid these days
0: oh that's interesting isn't it so there's there's still different responses in terms of how someone is mobile
1: yes Most of my work is, you know, quite a lot, not most of it, quite a lot of my work, previous work, like Moments in Motion and the new show that we're working on with um, Mimbra, Look Mum No Hands, is based in this idea of perceptions of what mobility aids are and what they do. So this is a misconception that mobility aids are restricting, but actually the whole point of a mobility aid is to enable rather than um, restrict so we often play around with that as a concept in in th- there's a current theme within my work that plays around with that concept
0: so you just mentioned moments in motion and that was in 2005 and as far as i understand it uh, was the first time you integrated your aerial skills within theater performance and it struck me because you also included flashbacks to childhood experiences waiting on cold hospital trolleys for operations and spending nights on the wards alone. And that made me wonder how you managed feeling perhaps vulnerable or fearful, how you negotiated your sense of courage. But I was also interested in that choice of having that aerial contrast. It was like an out-of-body experience where you could then look down on yourself on, on that trolley. And it raised a contrast of mobility and immobility. So I just wondered what your thoughts were.
1: Yeah, so that piece was probably my first and most autobiographical piece that I've um, uh, made. And it was one of those pieces where I really did draw upon um, yeah, what it meant to be growing up disabled in a world designed for everybody, but yourself. And um, up until I was about 15, I was in and out of hospital a couple of times a year for different operations and things like that. Um, And uh, there were, I had my, my um, parents were very, um, what's the word? I want to say open, but whenever we were in the, we were in with a doctor, they would the doctor would always at some point say so if daryl wants to go outside we can then just have a chat and my mum would always be like no it's his body he can stay in and you know have an opinion and so i did listen to some quite horrific things you know about how what the operation would involve and all of that type of stuff and uh i did go through a phase where um uh before i the, the night before i go into hospital i would you know be rather upset and be sort of asking my mum whether I would come out of hospital or would I die. Um, and then when you think about that as a sort of 10, 11, 12-year-old, that's that's quite sort of intense. And it was those feelings that I really wanted to sort of play around with in moments in motion. And when I was making the show, because exactly as you were saying, there was, it was trying to draw the parallels between being a disabled gay man going out and trying to find someone, um, yeah, trying to find someone basically. And those feelings as well we're, were quite similar to those feelings I was having as a child in terms of what's going to happen. Nobody will want me. I'm very different from everybody else. And uh, that was the sort of um, narrative of the of the piece. And when we were making it, somebody said, oh, it's, it's like those moments you were you're describing in the hospital, it's like you're um describing them as if you're looking down on it. And they said to me, Why don't you do some aerial in it? And I'd never done aerial at all. And so I, being, you know, quite sort of um much younger then, uh, I was like, Yeah, fine, I'm gonna do aerial. So then I went off and did trapeze training. And to be fair, uh I've I've that was my first time and I've um yeah, never stopped really. I really um love having being in the air and doing stuff um but yeah as i said the piece was really playing with the idea around sort of mobility and immobility and actually there is a beauty to um to difference and um uh, and you know as a teenager we spend most of our time trying to fit in <laughs> but actually as you get older you realize there's more power in in Being different and not being the same as everybody else. And so it was really to sort of, um, yeah, play around with that as 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 a concept and as a way to sort of, yeah, just talk about it, I suppose.
0: You describe really frightening scenarios for a child. Like you were saying, the things you had to listen, operations that you had to face... How do you how do you remember perhaps navigating that or negotiating that in your mind or or where did your your courage come from?
1: Family, you know, even though I say that I was the only uh, disabled kid on my council estate uh, and the only one that I knew. In fact, I didn't really know anybody else. Um, uh, and even though we, I was brought up in a very sort of mainstream family with 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 very sort of mainstream views and therefore even as I say growing up we didn't the way that we spoke about disability was you know being handicapped the things you can't do all of those so that the language was never really there for me but at the same time it was something that we might not have spoke publicly about outside of our family but it was something that was quite you know um easy to talk about within even though now historically looking back on it i cringe at the language we used. but um it doesn't mean that the conversations didn't happen and I you know I spent a lot of time with my um with my mother who became my best friend and my carer because even when I was out of hospital I would still be um having to spend, you know, a couple of months uh, indoors resting and stuff like that. So, uh, and she was an incredibly sort of strong woman. So I suppose the combination of sort of uh, all of that meant that, um, yeah, I don't really know. I think that's where I, I would never call it courage because I can't imagine. I suppose in order to have courage, you need to have experienced the other side. It's like happy or sad. You don't know you're happy if you've never been sad. So um, I think there's a difference to being born disabled rather than acquiring a disability later in life. And so for me, I often say that it was only when I was like probably 13 or 14 that I saw myself on film. Um, and this was before I did the Central TV workshop, um, like a home video video. I saw myself walking and I was really surprised because I hadn't realised that's how I walked because within within my body, it felt completely normal. It's only when I sort of saw it from the outside that I was like, oh, right, that's why people stare.
0: That's fascinating. So even your own self-perception um, was confronted in a way by yourself at one point. It's really significant, I think, how there's always a general consensus that courage is ultimately about vulnerability, um, that that's that's where essentially it comes from. Uh, And it's a curious thing in itself. It's very hard to explain where it comes from other than influences like your mum, for example, people that are compassionate and supportive uh, and take an active role in that. But I'm also interested in perhaps your courage being cultivated through the act of risk. So all of the adversities that you describe always lead to liberations. For example, the trapeze. So now here you are as a trapeze artist. What was that process like, the challenges on you, the fears, the risks that may have raised? but in a way that perhaps cultivated courage or trust in yourself.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, uh, I just have to say, I, I, it's interesting. I I sort of would never sort of call myself a trapeze artist. I use trapeze or aerial within my work and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's um, uh, a creative tool that I sometimes use to uh, get over a message or, or, or something, but risk is really interesting and i think again it comes back to this especially as a disabled person it comes back to uh, other people's perceptions because um again i remember as, a, as as a child being allowed to climb trees with both legs in plaster you know um because uh because that's what just everybody did um and uh the 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 piece that i'm made with Mimbra that look Mom no hands really does play on this idea of risk and that actually as a young disabled person your sense of risk is actually something that's put on you by everybody else um uh, we did uh uh, when we were making that show we we did a lot of um creative work with young 8 to 12 year olds disabled and non-disabled and their concepts of or understanding of risk was was really different, purely because um, purely because the perception of what is risky for a disabled person or what is risky for a non-disabled person was so different, even though they're the same age and all of that, so I have never, the things that I find are risky are, are not necessarily physical things. I think I find much more risk in sort of social interactions. Um, you know, those uh, uh side of things. So to be physically risky, I don't perceive. I I quite enjoy. I've always enjoyed a physical challenge. Um I uh my even when I was at university, uh, the thing that I was really interested in was physical theatre and you know that type of stuff so i'm really interested in how we can use our bodies as as tools Um, but i suppose for me when it comes to risk is more the sort of uh mental or social aspect of interaction uh because that involves somebody else
0: that's really interesting so obviously, you facilitate all sorts of theatre productions. um, And as you were saying, with with children recently with Look Mum, No Hands. And I read, you know, the responses to Look Mum, No Hands wasn't just outstanding, creative, amazing, as if that wasn't enough, but also the fact that people cried, they really connected and were very emotional. And it was, it seemed because of the friendship that you were illustrating and the relationship to risk each of them had and how that was explored. I wondered if you might want to bring that to life a little for the listeners.
1: Sure. So it's uh, Look Mom No Hands is a co-production with Mimbra, which is a female-led acrobatic company. And it's an outdoor show. And uh, it's really just the story of Two friends, and one of those friends, one of those is uh, friends, is a wheelchair user, and the other is a non-disabled person. And it's really just together about the story. Is really just about how they come together to explore each other's boundaries. Ultimately, how far you can push each other. You know, is because for me, that's what friendship is really about: is the sort of the give and the take and sometimes you overstep the line and then you have to work out how to come back from that and how to rebuild. So really it's just a, a very sort of um, simple story about two people getting to know each other, but um, we use uh, theatre and acrobatics or acrobalance as as the tool, as the metaphor to tell that story. So it's nonverbal and um, it's, also about those two individuals perceptions of each other so or oh, you shouldn't do that because that's a bit too risky for example um Laura um or or Cat because there's a role share they speed speed around in their wheelchair and then the other performer is like oh you shouldn't do that because that's a bit risky um and likewise you know um the wheelchair user performer pushes too far on the on the other on and Danielle. uh through, um, yeah, just through through being a bit too mischievous or a bit too bullish, if you like, and sort of takes that too far. So really, sorry, that was a really waffly answer. Uh, But ultimately, it's a story about two friends trying to work out how far they can push each other and what their limits are and what their boundaries are. And then ultimately, and this is the main thing, ultimately respecting them. So actually, you've overstepped the mark that time I've learned. I now know, and I will respect it. So, so that's the that's the sort of story. But um, and in a way, it's generally a story of any relationship, to be fair, and it's specifically aimed at young people. But um, I find there's also a misconception about work for young audiences, whereas you know it's described as sort of children's theatre. It's about bumblebees and sort of nice, happy things, and actually, our approach to making work for young audiences. Is how do you make theatre accessible to young audiences rather than making work that is child-like?
0: Yeah, and this seems to be such a wonderful example of of how you work. And like you were saying, pushing boundaries from the point of view of a disabled person, pushing boundaries from the point of view of a non-disabled person, and ultimately all entwined in terms of of their friendship. It's a lovely way of of including lots of different perspectives. Um, It's interesting that you also mentioned um, that exploration of risk in this production in terms of pushing boundaries, because it seems to me that if we can explore risk, If we're not risk adverse, so for example, I don't like the saying curiosity killed the cat. I think that's deeply prejudiced because by being open, by exploring risk in a a safe way, but at least in an imaginative way, surely we cultivate trust in ourselves. We have to learn to trust our bodies or trust our instincts, for example, trust our gut feeling, for example, does that not amount to a form of courage that that helps facilitate being brave enough to go forward, to develop, to make new decisions?
1: Within the show, when we were exploring the the sort of uh, the themes and stuff, we, we looked at it as what is risk and what is independence? And especially for young people, how do you become independent of your parents? Um, and actually, the only way you can become independent of your parents is for a you to take small risks all the time and for your parents to take small risks all the time in terms of letting you go out and and you know so actually the um, this concept of risk comes with such negative connotations but actually we're every day we're taking small risks you know especially over. i mean gosh over the last two years with the sort of uh, pandemic and things like that you know we've constantly been having to sort of face risks on a daily basis and whilst yes they can be detrimental if 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 you if that risk is too far um but at the, at the same time how can we grow how can we uh develop how can we learn uh if we're not taking risks so if you're right for me risk and curiosity are so interlinked because in order to discover something, we sometimes have to take a risk. And that can be the tiniest risk that we might not even perceive as a risk. But actually, you know, picking the phone up and calling, you know, that job or calling someone. You know, it's a risk if, if you look at it in that sort of way. So um, I think we're surrounded by risk all the time. But less risk results in um, learning. It results in developing, it results in trying something new. Um, And I don't think it's something we should be afraid of in that sense that not all risk is bad.
0: I couldn't agree more. And notably, you also mentioned that in comparison to physical risk taking, you actually find social interaction perhaps more risky or more challenging is this challenging now our social interaction
1: uh not so much because i mean as i said at the started i was a bit like five minutes beforehand i was like oh what's going to be said what's going to be said but i suppose it's because i understand the context of what we're going to be having a conversation about um uh, and i think that the, the uh, for me it's um yeah i find the risk of social interaction for me is really it's tied into um, what I thinking people are perceiving me as, if that makes sense. So it's a much more internal dialogue than um, than the actual interaction. It's sort of like what they're thinking I'm doing, or will they, you know, if I'm sat down in say at a bar or something and I start chatting to somebody, but they haven't seen me move, there's always that moment of like, oh, no, I'm going to have to get up in a minute. And then they're going to like go, oh, I didn't expect that, you know. So my, and therefore I go, well, what's that? How is, how is that moment then going to influence how we interact from that moment onwards?
0: Yeah, that's really interesting because you're dealing with reactions all of the time that someone who doesn't have a disability doesn't have to have the same awareness of. It seems a good time from that point of view to raise Nicaragua because that seems enormously challenging and physically and in terms of social interactions and perceptions so um, it's a BBC2 production um Beyond Boundaries so for the listeners who who won't know the program or haven't seen it could you give some context and and perhaps share exactly what those challenges were
1: Yeah, so this was something that happened in
0: 2005, I think. Um,
1: And uh, basically it was, um, they brought together, the BBC decided to do this uh, programme called Beyond Boundaries and they brought together uh, 11 disabled people and uh, a mixture of sort of impairments. And uh, basically, in a nutshell, dropped us off on the get me math right dropped us off on the uh, east coast of Nicaragua and then we had four weeks to make our way across to the west coast and that's about 200 miles as the as the crow flies and um, basically they just filmed it and they wanted to see how a group of disabled people could work with each other to climb mountains and get across lakes and all of that type of stuff um, I just start off with saying it was like an amazing experience um, and, uh, yes, so we had to go to rainforest, we had to climb mountains, we had to go up volcanoes, we had to do horseback riding. Um, again, and when you talk about risk, it's really interesting because one of the, even though it was risky in the sense of we could you know, people got injured and had to leave, be helicoptered out, stuff like that. Um, but at the same time, it wasn't risky because we were with the BBC, so we knew anything did happen, we would be looked after incredibly well very quickly. Um, what was interesting around that was the it was at a time in my life where I'd just finished a job and wanted to do something different. So I suppose going into that process, um, I was very open and really sort of like the social interactions and the meeting new people, I actually found fascinating. Um, Not saying that we all got on all the time. Um, And again, the physical stuff, you know, I think uh, I broke down once on those four weeks and that's when I got lost on a volcano and realised I was on my own. And then suddenly I was really like, gosh, uh, what have I let my, what have I done here? Um, But what was, interesting was that actually even though it was uh, a really wonderful experience by time it got to the sort of um four one-hour programs for BBC two on a Tuesday when I watched them back the thing that was the most risky for me was because actually what how it had been sort of edited or perceived sort of played into this idea of a charity model of disability Rather than the social model of disability, which during the filming I kept talking about the social model and it's I'm not disabled because of my my medical condition. I'm disabled because of the world in which I live. None of that sort of uh, made it into the program, and it was all very much like, "Aren't these people brave?" And I suppose I'd sort of gone into that whole process with my eyes closed or, or just ignoring that because I wanted to spend four weeks trekking across Nicaragua. Um, but it was you know, it did change people's perceptions. It did um, uh, challenge us all. Uh, But it felt, you know, if you were to watch it now, I'd feel I I sort of would watch it through sort of um, uh, cringe, uh, covering my eyes slightly, going, oh, gosh, you know, uh, just because of the way that it sort of played into this sort of non-disabled mainstream view of what it means to be disabled. So I, I have a sort of love and sort of uncomfortableness with with um with the program but uh it was still like an amazing um experience and something that you know again uh, people have this notion and this idea that which the program tied in played into a little bit that you know as a disabled person you know um uh, your life choices all of that but well, they are reduced but actually what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that I, I wouldn't be working in the arts if it wasn't because I was disabled. I wouldn't have had that opportunity if I wasn't disabled. So I think there's this idea that, um, that being disabled is a, is a bad thing, where actually a lot of the people I know uh, who are disabled, yes, we face barriers on a regular basis, but actually being disabled is part of my identity being a queer man is part of my end identity, being sort of, you know, growing up in a council state is part of my identity. And neither one of them is less valid than the other. And actually all of that make me who I am. So it's about ownership. It's about identity, it's about pride. And it's about understanding that, you know, there is a great um, uh, community uh, that, that just doesn't get portrayed or seen.
0: It's a fascinating series, um, bearing in mind everything you're saying. Um, people can always hop onto to YouTube to, to see clips or episodes still. It is incredibly gruelling from what I've seen. I mean, military level gruelling. Um and and properly frightening i mean when i mentioned
1: i know i forget about all sorry i forget about all i forget about the army <laughs> I forget about you know people getting injured and being helicoptered out um and all of that type of stuff i mean it was yeah it was it was full on
0: yeah i mean the explanation of um armed soldiers going ahead because of bandits kidnappers cocaine smugglers the crocodiles enough was scary And then inevitably, the um, explosions of people's tensions, uh, emotional exhaustion, you know, I mean, it's it's fascinating on on lots of levels. I'm interested um, in the fact that you were one of seven out of the 11 that actually completed the whole mission. And you mentioned the volcano and being lost on the volcano. You did conquer the volcano, but can we dig into that a little bit more about what was really happening to you then and how come you were there on the volcano on your own what on earth was going through your mind for you to actually still find a way to conquer it
1: stubbornness i suppose comes <laughs> down to it um i'm very competitive and 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 sometimes competitive is again is, it's like a bad thing you know oh gosh he's really competitive and uh fear of missing out i don 't know there was there was something that well there's a couple of things a i was I was just pissed off that i'd sort of um, that i'd felt in that moment that people had left me, and yeah, there were many factors how I ended up on my own on this on on the volcano um but in that moment, I felt that everyone had just left me, and so that brought back quite a lot of sort of you know being in hospital on your own, all of those sort of childhood sort of uh, uh, things. And um, then I suppose it was, yeah, I was just sort of, I suppose it comes back to this courage, doesn't it, really, in terms of um, I was sort of like, I don't want to be in a position where this mountain has broken me. And maybe that there is, inter- there's, I'm sure there is, some internal internal ableism within that as in like i've got to prove myself uh you know because just because we're disabled doesn't mean we don't have our own internal ableism and uh it was interesting because i do remember getting to the sort of top of the volcano and the film crew there and they were like can you just wait there daryl we have just got to change change the um the camera and i just remember swearing at them going no in way and I literally got to the top of a volcano went right Amia, and turned and went straight back down whereas everybody else was just enjoying the view I was just like no I just need to sort of stick my flag and then I'm heading back down because this is not a pleasurable experience.
0: What do you think you really conquered obviously you did conquer the volcano what were you really conquering in terms of yourself? In terms of myself
1: oh gosh that's a really tough question I went into uh, that program wanting to prove to myself that no matter what, regardless of my body's pros and cons, its limitations, however you want to sort of describe it, that actually I know it well enough and I know that my body can serve me to how I need to be. Um, If that makes sense. Um, So I suppose in a way it was just sort of like it was. Yeah, it was sort of conquering this idea that my body would let me down at some point and me knowing full well that actually I've lived in this body for 30 ideas by that point and I knew it intimately um and uh, I knew what it was capable of and what it wasn't capable of and in a way I just wanted to sort of test myself
0: that's interesting because that seems to relate to what we were saying earlier about building trust trusting yourself trusting your body it's a form of resilience isn't it
1: yeah totally and I, and, I, and I think you know and and again when we talk about sort of risk and curiosity there are things that I'm not going to do because for me physically Uh, Because I sort of know the sort of, um, I know the limitations and I know that there is probably a couple of steps beyond that that I could go if I really wanted to, to test it. But of course, you know, it's all got to be, I say calculated, but that's not right. It's, it's, you know, there's got to be a reason, a desire, something in that. And I suppose my outlet is like, how can I do that in a, how can I use my body and, and get other people to use their bodies and push the boundaries within a creative context so it has meaning it has emotion it has feeling rather than it just being um you know i'm not a i'm not a paralympian i'm not pushing my body just to sort of break a record i mean ut- i'm wanting to work with like-minded people that look at sort of physicality that look at sort of um, aesthetics of access which is a great term great I use um, and how that can be a thing of beauty even though it's not perceived as
0: it fascinates me because after looking at that series I was really curious as to if Daryl was producing and directing this series today what would his approach be first of all it would be
1: to address the sort of issues around the, the types of conversations that we were encouraged to have. Um, so actually, I suppose, ultimately, I, it would be political. And, and that doesn't mean it has to be political with a big P. It could be political with a small P. It would, have, it would be around those moments of... One of the things that wasn't in that programme enough for me, having been through it, was the laughter. We had a really fun time, you know uh we would sort of we'd take the piss out of each other uh again, it comes t- ties into this whole sort of you know um disability culture of you know a hierarchy of disabilities and and you know uh, and, and uh you know taking the piss out of each other because of their impairments or how they do you know that type of thing which really just sort of. Again, I suppose it goes back to what we we're talking at the beginning around taking fun seriously, allowing that. You know, there was hardly any laughter in that programme when it was aired. Um, and of course it's it's you know, I should have realised it was that reality TV type model where, you know, the the entertainment is in the conflict, whereas for me the entertainment is in the ed- the entertainment and the education, for want of a better word, is not in the conflict. It might be in how it's resolved, but it's actually in around the reality of what it means and and I felt that was missing so I would uh approach it from the sense of it'd be interesting to take all that footage and re-edit it in in my sort of narrative so not about replacing it but actually how would you re-edit it to actually show the moments that are yeah that are funny that actually and sometimes you know a little bit sort of close to the edge because then that allows you the the space to to unpick that and have conversations around it and sort of like is that too far is that not too far again it comes back to this whole thing of risk curiosity boundaries you know I think I think gosh now discovering everything I do is 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 within that sort of um uh, realm
0: It would be brilliant to propose that if you could get your hands on that footage and re edit it. Because what really leaps out to me is if that was full of laughter, as well as the struggle and the demands of that adventure, isn't it shocking that that was denied? It's a prejudice. It reminds me of what you were saying earlier in the film when you were 15, as soon as you stood up, that was edited out. You know, that's a very acute choice. Why remove the laughter and humanity that was part of this group of people's survival?
1: I know. I mean,
0: it was. I
1: mean, it'd be interesting if because they did an, they did an, uh, another two series because this was the first series I did. They did another two afterwards, which was interesting because the participants that took Volve got younger and younger. So I don't know how it would evolve and whether it, that would be the, the approach they would take today because it was literally you know twenty years ago um, and sort of things have moved on. Well I say that things have moved on. We've still got sort of undateables and all of that type of programming that just sort of you know t- um, speaks to that sort of charity model again. but um, I think that's it and I think and I think that's what comes back to sort of all of the my approach to the theater and the work that I make is how do we represent, present, use all of those facets that make us that make us human and so for example you know I was talking about you know Look Mum and also another show of mine the Square World they're very sad stories but the reason that the the reason people find them emotional is because one minute they can empathize with the character or they are the character they're having really good fun with them and then something happens that they know hasn't happened to them but then they're back with it so the audience are able to dip in out and follow and feel like the character but then also understand the difference that that character has to them and um yeah sorry i can't remember where i was going with that i just went off and on one but the, but um yeah but it's around showing showing people as human good bad best bits ugly bits um rather than just focusing focusing a narrative on a predetermined assumption of what it is this person can or cannot do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So as I race the clock, Daryl, something um, I mentioned in the introduction and and in relation to what you were just saying, actually, um, was the the sway poles. Um, And you were part of the 2012 opening ceremony of the Paralympics. And you said, I'm not a Paralympian, but you were certainly a key performer at the opening ceremony. I wondered if you could bring that to life to people, what, what that is, um, Sway Pole performance, and tell us about the challenges perhaps of that, that choreography, the fear and the celebration. So, yes, I
1: was part of the specialist aerial team on the um, Paralympic opening ceremony 2012. And for a few years prior to that, um, I've been working on a collaboration between Grey Company and an Australian based company called Strange Fruit. And they perform um, Strange Fruit, they, I can't remember how they describe it now, but they describe it as creating communities in the sky. So basically, uh, the performers stand on top of a 20 foot pole that bends. And depending on how you move your body, the pole bends in different ways so you can do synchronized choreography uh, in the air and when we started to um, develop that work what became very apparent quite early on was that in order to the way that they're designed is that you stand on top of them whereas um, I wasn't able to stand on top of it because uh, even though I can stand up I certainly don't have the strength to move the pole in the same way as everybody else and we it's interesting we spent a lot of time trying to fix the problem of me standing on it so you know I would stand on it but there are different straps and all of this type of stuff and uh, one day we were just like oh my gosh this is so not the right approach because actually we're trying to make me fix the pot fit the pole and actually if you take a social model approach to it the pole needs to fit me not the other way around so then they were like oh just sit on it But then they put a little seat, they tried out a little seat and then suddenly I was able to operate it still in a different way to everybody else. But actually I was able to keep the momentum and and create it. And actually what evolved from that, like all good things, when you start to put access and inclusion at the start of something, you end up with something different that you might not have expected. So actually we sort of evolved the physicality of how to work on these uh, poles. and again, anything it was creative, it's physical, it was allow me to get in the air and try something. So a, again, for me, there wasn't really sort of any fear or risk within that. And then when we moved into the um Paralympic opening ceremony, it was directed by Jenny Seeley and um uh, Bradley Hemming from Grey Iron and Greenwich and Docklands International Festival. And what was really interesting around that is that they had a massive back catalogue of artists they've worked with over the last 10 years disabled and non-disabled that um, that they just brought in to do this big opening ceremony and unlike any of the other opening ceremonies for the Paralympics um, it was an inclusive piece it was political um, it spoke about human rights, it put disability in the context of being a human right rather than something that's other um, and uh, and i I sort of and yes, yeah, so there was lots of different aerial, there were different performances, and it told a a, a, a narrative um, and of course, on a massive scale, the stadiums what like eighty thousand people. That was an amazing experience to perform in that. I remember I was also um, doing um, some of the harness work, so I flew across the top of the um, stadium as well, and I remember being pulled up. Uh, and that was about twenty five thirty meters off the ground. I remember being pulled up at the start, and the, the ceremony opened, and all the fireworks oh. went off, and then suddenly you're just like in the middle of the, se- of the stadium, flying around. It was uh, it was amazing. But um, what is really interesting, and well, I'll just make this point, is that um, we talk in the in the arts, we talk about inclusive work, um, which again is something other than the mainstream. And, and actually it's around how do you flip that on its head? Because actually if the mainstream is something that's available to most people and um, by making your work exclu- in- exclusive, mainstream is exclusive, but by making your work inclusive, all you're trying to do is open the mainstream up to more people. So therefore, you know, being inclusive isn't, isn't specialist it's actually beyond the mainstream because you want more and more people to be involved in it. And so when you look at the Paralympic opening ceremony, people say it was an amazing ceremony, an amazing piece of theatre, but ultimately it's an inclusive piece of theatre because it was disabled, non-disabled, sign language interpreted, audio described, you know, all of that. But nobody sort of looks at the Paralympic opening London 2012 ceremony and goes, that was a piece of inclusive theatre, when in fact it was. And I think that's always the essence for me, is actually being inclusive isn't being bespoke. It's about actually going beyond uh, the mainstream.
0: Beautifully said. Beautifully said, because I really believe there's a lot of importance attached to why we need to revisit and explore what curiosity means and and what courage means.
1: And I think that is when we talk about access and inclusion, especially I'm talking from a sort of uh, creative point of view, is that um, you have to be curious in order to solve the problem. So actually, if there is a barrier preventing somebody, then ultimately to address that is creative problem solving. And in order to be creative problem solving, you have to be curious about what could possibly be the other options. And so, yeah, it's all tied up into the same sort of thing.
0: Everything you've talked about—it's um, wildly impressive and inspiring, and so kind. Your joyousness is so kind. It's—it's it's very compassionate what you're aiming to share. And when I consider all of the social barriers you've had to push away from disability, performance, working in in theatre, your consistently referring to how the arts in a way always saved you always helped you thrive it, the, the irony in fact of 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 how the arts liberated you so from that point of view and the series question can art save us
1: yes and i think there is a, 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 again it becomes how do we define art for uh, 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 is a series as, as a question but majority of my work involves uh, creating work or working with uh, young people. Um, I find such great pleasure and joy and creativity within that purely uh, around you know Theatre etiquette hasn't, hasn't set in yet. Uh, you know, I, t- I say that, you know, creating work for your audiences means that, you know, they're very vocal. If they find something boring, they will tell you there and then in the moment, <laughs> mid performance, this is boring, man, when can I go home? You know, so you're having to constantly evolve and make sure you can keep them engaged. Um, and, the, uh, And working and all of my shows are created or developed with young people as a starting point. And that's because young people, regard even 14, 15 year olds, they pretend they don't, but they do, still use play as a way to learn, as a way to discover. um, uh, Whether that's sort of, you know, playing families with teddy bears or, you know, or um, even through social media and things like that, sort of playing with ideas, you know and play is art and art is play and so the so the two are so intertwined and where is another safe way to try and work something out than play because play you can make up your own rules you can stop playing at any point you want you can move on so for me art and play and this is why we I, we talk about taking fun seriously and play seriously is because it's a way to it's a way to explore and to discover. And so for me, uh whether you define something as art or not, if it involves play, I think it is creative because you're having to use your imagination, you're having to think of different scenarios. And so can art save us? Yes, it can.
0: Beautifully said. And and it is, of course, the art of play. So play certainly is part of that um daryl i I can't thank you enough for your time It, it really is joyous talking to you and um there will be a link to your work on your episode page and i encourage everybody to leap on discover more be curious comment about curiosity but not only have you conquered mountains you're clearly moving mountains in the name of inclusion And I can't thank you enough for what you're doing and for your time today.
1: Well, thank you for having me. and Thank you for inviting me. It's an honour.
0: You're very welcome. It's been an honour talking to you. Thank you, Daryl.